warm welcome to all of you um, to this first of a two-lecture series on uh, South India's history by Professor Raj Mahan Gandhi. Um, I'm honored to have a, the opportunity, once again, to say a few words of introduction. Um, I'm going to keep my comments fairly short, you know, as professors go anyway, because uh, he doesn't need very much introduction, and also because I know you're all eagerly awaiting his talk and the opportunity for questions and, uh, and answer, answer session. I do want to take a moment, however, to point at the significance of the topics uh, of these lectures, which may seem a wee bit esoteric to most uh, non-Indian descent Americans. Um, they, they are flowing from Professor Gandhi's current project, which is a kind of historical sweep of uh, the history of the southern parts of the Indian subcontinent. Now, uh, if you're my age, well, even a bit younger, but certainly people of my age, um, our knowledge of India usually came through some works that were very much focused on northern India and New Delhi. So I, you know, until I got to probably well into my undergraduate career, I was convinced that the UP, Uttar Pradesh, was all of India. Um, I learned differently later, and I'm I'm a Southie by choice now. Anyway, uh, even as I gained some exposure right to the interesting literature on southern India, they, most of the studies were you know kind of specific. They required some knowledge, and there weren't very many books that actually provide kind of a uh, a, a good overview of this. Uh, area of the country. So Professor Gandhi's latest project then promises to fill a very important gap, at least for those of us who um, need a work that is in very lucid and accessible uh, English. He'll provide insights, I'm sure, into the social, political, and cultural dynamics of the area, as he has in his other books. And he'll also um, tell us quite a bit, as he will these next two evenings, about key individuals who helped to make Southern India. I should say a few words about Professor Gandhi himself instead of about myself. <laughs> uh, Professor Gandhi uh, is or has been uh, a journalist, an activist, a politician, a teacher, uh, and of course a scholar. And I'm leaving out all of his private, uh, private uh, roles as, uh, as I say this. Uh, he served as chief editor of the Bombay Weekly Himmat, editor of India Express in Madras. Uh, he served in the Rajya Sabha and as a convener of the all-party joint committee of both houses addressing the condition of the scheduled castes and tribes and scheduled tribes. And then uh, in 1990, he was a leader of the Indian delegation to the United Nations Human Rights Commission in Geneva. Uh, more recently, he ran for the Lok Sabha with the Ahmad Mi Party. Uh, and beyond all these kinds of official and public commitments, he's also worked tirelessly through civil society for dialogue and reconciliation between divided communities throughout the world, including between Hindus and Muslims in South Asia and India. Uh, one of the examples of his work is with Initiatives of Change International, formerly known as Moral Rearmament, uh, with which he's been associated since 1956. He was an in instrumental 
uh, in establishing its conference and its activism center, Asia Plateau, which is in Panjgani, which I still have to visit. <laughs> Professor Gandhi has been a jury member of the Nuremberg International Human Rights Award and co-chair of the Center for Dialogue and Reconciliation in Gurgaon, uh, India. As if this political and social activism weren't enough, uh, Professor Gandhi has also spent considerable time in the academy. From 1992 to 2000, he served as research professor at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. 97 to 2012, he served as research professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he also taught history and political science courses. And of course, as many of you know, he's been the Hannah uh, Distinguished Professor here at Michigan State over the last several years. He's the author of many academic publications, more than a dozen books, uh, including, but certainly not limited to, uh, limited to The Good Boatman, a pro uh, portrait of Gandhi, Gandhi, the man, his people, and the empire, A Tale of Two Revolts, India in uh, 1857 and the American Civil War, uh, Punjab, a history from Aurangzeb to Mountbatten, uh, of, uh, you go on and on, Rajaji, a life and biography of Chakravarti Rajagopalachari, uh, and most recently, Why Gandhi Still Manners, which he completed here at Michigan, well, he was here at Michigan State University last year. We're extremely fortunate that he has chosen to visit Michigan State University again. He's teaching a course. You can introduce yourself to some of the students and vice versa. Uh, and he's working on his manuscript, finishing it up on the history of southern India. So without further delay, please join me in welcoming. Well, I'm very grateful that I have this chance again at this wonderful place, James Madison College. And I express my gratitude to all associated with this and with MSU and several of you are here. Um, now, why did the Europeans want to visit India or South India or to be in India or South India? Um, in recent decades, so many people from all over the world have come to the United States. Uh, it, was the go -to, it has been the go-to country for all those wanting to do something enterprising, make money, succeed in life. Well, you've all heard of the great poverty of many parts of India, but in the 17th and 18th century, India and China were the go-to countries for the world. So the Portuguese first, the Dutch next, the British after that, and then the French went to India because India was the go-to place at that time. Um, so the Europeans arrived as supplicants to begin with, uh, wanting uh, land or facilities or permissions from Indian chiefs wherever they arrived in India. From supplicants, they became partners in trade. From partners in trade, they became allies in conflicts between one Indian chief and another Indian chief. And after being allies in conflict, they became rulers. So this was the progression of of European powers. Um, now, South India is different from North India in many ways. One major difference is that in the North, the, Him the Himalayas are the great fact of life. In the South, the oceans are the great fact of life. There is the Bay of Bengal, east, 
and the Arabian Sea on the west. Um, in the north, when people came from the rest of the world into India, they came on horses. So the sound of the horse hoofs was the way Indians heard of people coming in. In the south, it was the sails on the horizon that indicated that people were coming in. Um, South India, like the rest of India, has lots of castes, and it also has lots of languages. And in the 18th century, which is our theme for today and tomorrow, there was enormous instability. Uh, neither India as a whole, nor South India as a region, had a very clear, stable, central ruler. This was the case for a long time. Even during the rule of the great Emperor Ashoka in the third century, uh, before the Common Era, even during Ashoka's rule, all that century, those centuries ago, South India, but part of South India was not ruled by him. Uh, the great Akbar, the greatest perhaps of the Mughal rulers, the 16th century ruler of India, he ruled over much of India, but not the southern portions of India. Not only was there no rule of a stable kind by any ruler of India over South India, even local chiefs did not have prolonged periods of, of, of rule in southern India. There was a remarkable empire for two, two to three hundred years, which ended in 1565, called the Vijayanagara Empire, with its capital in Hampi, uh, where the Kannada-speaking part of South India and the Telugu-speaking part of South India kind of come together. That kingdom lasted till 1565. But by the time the 18th century came along, all that was well into the past. Uh, the last of the big Mughal emperors, whose name was, some of you would know, Aurangzeb, who ruled for 49 years. He died in 1707. He was the one who took Mughal rule almost to the deep south, to the very end of, of South India. Uh, and this happened in the 1670s and 1680s. So it was not until Aurangzeb's southern invasions that much of South India also became part of uh, Mughal rule. Of course, Aurangzeb's southern campaigns were the cause also of the end of the Mughal Empire because they, were, they stretched the empire so much, so greatly and so expensively that soon it began a very steep uh, decline. Now, in the year 1639, the British formed, or the British East India Company, founded a base in Madras. Uh, I'm sure that, yeah, Madras is somewhere here. Uh, and then in 1673, uh, 30 plus years later, 
The French had a base in Pondicherry. The British East India Company, and then the French East India Company. The British in, Mondi, in, in Madras, and the French in Pondicherry. Um, so by the time the uh, British and the French had established these bases, so that we can now have those pictures. This is uh, Fort St. George, which is the British East India Company headquarters in Madras. Uh, by the way, the state of Tamil Nadu, the modern state of Tamil Nadu in South India, is still governed from this building, Fort St. George, uh, which dates from the 17th century, started in 1639. Let's have the Pondicherry picture. That is what the French built in 1673, or started in 1673. So in the years, let's go back to uh, Fort St. George. So in 1702, Aurangzeb sent his southern chief to besiege and blockade Fort St. George. The governor of this place, a man called Thomas Pitt, uh, sued for peace, and the siege was lifted. So during that siege, this representative of the Delhi Emperor Aurangzeb uh, had a conversation with a Muslim cleric at Fort St. George, employed by the British. And he asked the Muslim cleric, if the British are merchants, why do they have this fortification? And why do they have so many guns? Guns are not all visible here, but they were all visible in 1702. In 1707, Aurangzeb dies. And the Mughal decline commences. In 1724, something very significant happens, where the chief Mughal person for southern India, his headquarters were in Golconda, now known as Hyderabad. In 1724, the Mughal chief of that southern India from Hyderabad uh, overthrew his Mughal rulers control and became uh, ruler himself and called himself some kind of king or the Nizam. So from 1724, from Hyderabad, there is an attempt to control all of South India by the former viceroy of the Mughals. Um, I should mention that in the year 1714, uh, in a Protestant mission in a Danish-held uh, place called Trankibar, in, also in Tamil country, uh, there was a small German-made printing press, the first printing press to arrive in South India. So that also is a tiny part of the story. Now, in 1715, a Frenchman then in his teens, Joseph-Francois Duplay, landed in India on a vessel of the French East India Company. Then he became, he rose in the French hierarchy. The French had pockets in different parts of India by this time, but Pondicherry was the headquarters. And Joseph-Francois Duplay, Duplay became uh, the head of the French uh, administration in India. 
28 years younger than Duplay was Robert Clive. Can I have his picture? Robert Clive. 28 younger, years younger than Duplay. He is French, uh, the British counterpart of, of, of Duplay, who came to India in 1744, 28 or 29 years after Duplay. And these two had some interesting battles. Eventually, Clive was more successful. And of course, Clive in 1757 had his big triumph in eastern India, which we're not going into, which also was a very important event in the British conquest of, of India. So in the 1740s, Duplay is the governor of Pondicherry, the governor general of all of French India. But he has a very interesting associate, an Indian associate. This one, Ananda Rangapillai. Ananda Rangapillai is a Tamil-speaking merchant who belongs to the Velala caste. He's, he's a, it's a high caste. They are land owners, many of them. They may be administrators or warriors, scholars. They are high caste, but they're not Brahmins. The Brahmins are supposed to be the highest caste. But most significantly, Anandaranga Pillai speaks many languages. He speaks Tamil, Telugu, Hindustani, French, English. And he becomes a Dubash, which technically means you're able to speak two languages. But a Dubash was very often the person through whom a European influential person in India had his India connections. The Dubash interpreted the European chief, you might call him, to Indians, and he interpreted Indians to the European. And in his case, Rangapile became so close to Duplay, the French governor general of, of, uh, of French possessions of India. Um, this is what uh, an English scholar some years later said about Anandaranga Pillay. His influence with Monsieur Duplay, which he apparently exercised honestly and with judgment, was very marked. And he was evidently treated by that great man with full trust in his integrity and capacity. He then became, amongst the natives, if not the Europeans also, the right-hand man of his illustrious master, and was in constant personal communication with him. More interestingly for all of us students and scholars, Ananda Ranga Pillai wrote a diary in Tamil, which was discovered after his death. There were several books of an account book size in which he wrote his daily notes, jottings. And these were discovered, as I said, after he died. They were in Tamil. They were translated first into French and afterwards into English. And it is from the diary of Ananda Ranga Pillai that we get the observations, reflections, assessments of an Indian intellectual of that time. There are very few diaries by Indians dating to that time in any part of India. So here we have a rare account of what an Indian intellectual 
in the 1730s, 1740s, 1750s thought at that time. He was close to this very influential Frenchman, Duplay. Another person very close to Duplay was Duplay's wife, Madame Jean Albert Duplay. She was the widow of a French officer in India, and they married in India. And both were trying to influence Duplay, and that was one reason for their tension between Madame Duplay and Anandarangapille. Another cause of the tension was Madame Duplay's keenness to promote Christianity along with French influence. One of uh, Anandarangapille's Indian rivals was a man called Kanakaraya Mudali, who had become a Christian. And his becoming a Christian was also a factor in the rivalry between these two Indians. And they competed for influence, and eventually Anandaranga Pillay became the most influential Indian at Duplay's side. Now, in early in 1739, 1739, a very big event happened in the northern part of India, the invasion of Nadir Shah from Iran. It is an event well recorded and discussed in all accounts of Indian history. Uh, he arrived uh, to Lahore first and then to Delhi. And there, was, there were great killings. Many people were captured. Many people were taken away. Treasures were taken away. Um, he did not stay on in India. He returned to, to, to Iran. So this is what... Pile writes in his diary, 23rd of May, 1739. Monsieur Duplay's ship, Chandan Nagore was the name of the ship, arrived this day from Surat. Now, Surat is northern part of the west coast of India. That's, can we have that map of the, uh, the Indian map? Thank you. So, Delhi is part of the north. Surat is somewhere here. So a ship, a ship comes down like this, south, and goes north like this, and reaches Pondicherry. And it is people on that ship who inform people in Pondicherry that this man, Nadir Shah, has arrived some time back, invaded Delhi, um, proved victorious, made the Delhi emperor his prisoner, commanded that coins should be struck in his name, and that the name of Muhammad Shah, the Mughal ruler, should be obliterated from the current money. The Nawab of Surat was directed to suppress the coins struck by the Mughal ruler and to issue new ones bearing the legend, by the grace of God, Nadir Shah, emperor. So the diary continues, this stunning news was made known by Pondicherry's governor at the time, Pierre Dumas. Another entry on the same day conveys news received by Armenian merchants in Pondicherry. They were Armenian merchants in Pondicherry as well as in Madras. And this news was that Nadir Shah has now left for Persia. His, his son has taken with him a daughter of the Delhi emperor as a wife. And that between 100,000 and 150,000 men and women have been killed in Delhi, either by the sword or by suicide. According to this diary, 
the Armenians said that the chief in Hyderabad, the chief of southern India, you might say, was secretly in league with the invader. This is the story the Armenians here, Armenians in Pondicherry here from those who have come on the ship from Sudan. So receiving word from Delhi, persons in Surat relayed to the French in Pondicherry by a boat that goes down the long western coast of India before turning east and north up to the French settlement. In 1739, men like Pillay and governors like Dumas, the governor of Pondicherry, this is just before Dupley uh, becomes the governor, they must make what they can of news that the mighty Mughal Empire, which has been a constant for all their lives, has fallen. And then they must make what sense that they can of a correction that quickly follows. No, it has not fallen, only taken a near fatal blow. They must also chew over the possibility that Nizam Asaf Jawan, South India's chief lord, had clandestinely backed Nadir Shah, the invader from Iran. So European or Indian, persons in 18th century South India had to be ready each day for any contingency. Now the man in Hyderabad, the ruler there, Asaf, Asaf Jah I, wrote in his last testament that he had spurned an offer of Delhi's throne from Nadir Shah, and that the latter had appreciated his response. So Dumas leaves, and Duplay becomes the governor, and uh, Pillay is now the Dubash of, or close ally of Duplay. Pillay's rival, Kanakarai Mudali, gives a big party, a feast, to celebrate the construction of a new church in a village near Pondicherry. And the diary says that Brahmins, high caste Brahmins, Velalas, another high caste, Komatis, merchant caste, Chettis, also businessmen, goldsmiths, weavers, oil mongers, and other castes were invited, and Europeans also, it was a huge feast, but caste rules were strictly observed. Different kitchens prepared food separately for the different castes, and one distinct kitchen served only Europeans. So we learn, of course, through this and in, in, uh, through other incidents also, that colonization by Europeans into India and India's caste question are two questions that are related. You can't study one without studying the other. So Pillay in his diary says, yes, it was a big reception. The guests were pleased. Obviously, he himself was also at the reception. But he objects to a Christian host making Hindu differentiations while offering a feast. And he adds, if Kanakaraya Mudali, the Indian Christian, wished to conform to the rules of his church and the commands of his scriptures, he should have entertained only the Europeans and the native Christians, and the only Indians he should have entertained are the Hindu pariahs, the untouchables. He should not have brought the other caste Hindus into the mix. This also gives you an idea of, the, of that time. Now, 10 months after this reception, in September of 1746, 
Pillay tells Duplay, we learn this from the diary, that verses recording the feats of Duplay were being sung in the streets of Pondicherry and also that the emperor in Delhi, his throne's prestige evidently restored some years after the humiliation inflicted by Nadir Shah, has also heard of Duplay's feats. So what are Duplay's feats? What has happened is that in September of 1746, the French have captured Fort St. George. Let's have the picture of Fort St. George again. So the French from Pondicherry have captured the British Fort St. George. Um, and there are celebrations. And Pillay tells his master, Duplay, see, you are responsible for all this. On the night of 2nd October, however, of 1746, a great storm destroys six of the French ships that were berthed in Madras. So the French have captured Madras, but all their ships are destroyed by this storm on 2nd of October. So there is a well-known British historian, also of the 18th century, military historian called Robert Orme, O-R-M-E, a close friend of Robert Clive, the conqueror on behalf of the British of first southern India and then eastern India. Orme writes, the storm to which the French squadron had been exposed ruined the maritime force of that nation in India. So this is one big event that weakens the French considerably in India. However, three weeks after the storm, a fight takes place near the Adyar River in Chennai in Madras. Some of you have been to Chennai and you've been to the place called Adyar in south, south of Chennai. And near the Adyar River, there was a clash between a small French force and a much larger army of the Nawab of Arcot. Nawab of Arcot was an Indian chief in the Tamil country, kind of subordinate to Hyderabad, but exercising a good deal of autonomy. So this Nawab has a very large army. The French have a small force. And the French fleet has been destroyed. So the Nawab is confident that he is going now to take over Madras from the French. However, on 22nd October, the artillery of a small number of Frenchmen routed the Nawab soldiers who were astonished that a cannon could fire five or six times a minute, their own cannon only fired once in a quarter of an hour. Losing 70 of their fellows, the Nawab's men rapidly retreated and not a single Frenchman was killed. So this was what the Europeans realized in October of 1746. Even if India comes up with a large number of soldiers, even if a Mughal emperor controls most of India, the superior cannons of Europe can prove decisive. So Robert Clive has meanwhile arrived in southern India. When the French capture Madras, they capture Clive also, but he manages to escape. And then he organizes the British. Um, and there's a clash between Clive's people and Duplay's people. But meanwhile, some other items from the diary. 
the diary refers to a very interesting man called Chanda Sahib. Can we have his picture? Chanda Sahib. Chanda Sahib is a South Indian Muslim whose ancestors had been there for several centuries. Uh, they had arrived apparently from somewhere in the Arab world and landed in the Konkani speaking tract of the West Coast, not far from Mangalore. They had arrived. And uh, Chanda Sahib had become a very good soldier and a very remarkable soldier. And the French had decided to sponsor Chanda Sahib, to back him, to protect him, to ally with him. Uh, just as the British had allied, have allied themselves with the Nawab of Arcot. So the British have their ally, the French have their ally, uh, Chanda Sahib. Meanwhile, uh, Pillai hears that although Madras has been taken over by the French, the storm has destroyed the, the Navy, but also the, the chief naval officer of that among the French there, has a very difficult relationship with Duplay. It doesn't get along with Duplay. So uh, Pillay is surprised by this. He writes in his diary in 16th October 1746, the ways of Europeans who used always to act in union have apparently now become like those of natives and the Muslims of South India. He is surprised by this. Chanda Sahib's wife is harbored in Pondicherry, and Pillay encourages Duplay to cultivate the wife and the son. On 17 December 1747, Pillay says to Duplay that provided right gestures are made, you will become as powerful at Arcot as you are at Pondicherry, that you will also take over from the Nawab. And once Chanda Sahib becomes a Nawab, as you have planned, then you will become really influential. Um, and for a while, yes, the French strategy works. The Nawab of Arcot, Anwaruddin, is killed by Chanda Sahib and his forces. Chanda becomes a Carnatic Nawab, and Duplay emerges as a white giant. The chiefs of South India, thus far accustomed, in the words of Robert Orme, to see Europeans assuming no other character than that of merchants and paying as much homage to the Mughal government as could be exacted, were astonished at the rapid progress of the French arms and beheld with admiration the abilities of Mr. Duplin. And another French protege, Muzaffar Jung, becomes the Nizam of Golconda. Chanda Sahib is honored as the Nawab of the Carnatic, the Arcot. And Duplay, appearing in the dress of a Muslim lord, was declared the Mughal emperor's governor for all the lands south of the Krishna. These are enormous lands. So Duplay, this Frenchman, is kind of the viceroy's viceroy on behalf of the Mughals for South India. But then Robert Clive has other ideas. He's only 24, but he works effectively from Madras. Uh, by the way, the, uh, Madras, meanwhile, is returned to the British not because of 
battles on the ground, but because of an agreement in Europe. The French and the British have made a deal in Europe. Um, and so Madras is returned uh, to the British. And Robert Clive is in charge. And he, he and the Nawab of Arcot, now the son of Anwar al-Din, a man called Muhammad Ali, they work together. And I won't give you the detailed story, but they are successful, and Chanda Sahib uh, is arrested. Um, he goes to an Indian chief, hoping that he would help him escape. But then this Indian chief has this prize in his hands. Chanda Sahib is with him. But everybody wants Chanda Sahib. The Nawab of Arcot, Walaja, wants him. The rulers of Mysore want him. The Marathas want him. They are very influential at this stage from Western India, another uh, very influential Indian group there. Unwilling to antagonize the people who, who want Chanda Sahib, this chief, Mankoji, in Tanjavur, he chooses the option of killing his prisoner. Because if he were to give his prisoner to one group, the others would be, of course, angry against him. So he's killed. And the head is sent to uh, Muhammad Ali Walaja, now the unchallenged Nawab of Arcot. One of Chanda Sahib's friends, of course, Chanda Sahib is now dead, his French ally, and this is a setback to French uh, hopes. One of his allies is an Italian Jesuit called Constanzo Giuseppe Beschi, who served in the southern Tamil country around Madurai. Like De Nobili in the preceding century, another Italian Catholic missionary, Besky adopted a cloak resembling that of a Brahmin pontiff, smeared his forehead with sandalwood paste, and converted quite a few. He also became a literary figure in the Tamil world, composing dictionaries and grammars in Tamil and epic poems. Besky is most remembered for his Tamil book called Paramartha Kuruvi Kadai or the tale of Guru Simpleton, which he brilliantly wove from elements in Indian and Western folklore, writing the tale first in Tamil, then he translates it into Latin. So th this is of interest. This Italian missionary who learns Tamil becomes a very close friend and advisor to this soldier, Chanda Sahib, who is defeated by the British. But he writes this tale, uh, which according to some, marks the beginning of literary prose fiction in Tamil. By this time, lots of verses in Tamil have been written for centuries. But this is apparently, according to some, the first prose fiction written by this Italian uh, friend of Chandasai. Holding Duplay's ambitions responsible for his defeat and financial loss, the French East India Company recalled Duplay in 1754. He dies in neglect and want in France in 1763, seven years after the death of his wife there. And meanwhile, it is Robert Clive who has become the dominant figure. Um, so how do the South Indians what do they make of these Europeans who are with them, French or British? Are they seen as liberators? 
because there are many Indian chiefs who are oppressive chiefs. So you could imagine that someone who comes from outside and defeats the Indian chief may be seen as a liberator, but that is not the case. Even though some of the Indian chiefs in South India too are Muslims, and it's the Hindu population, you might imagine that they, some of them or many of them might be glad that the, that the Muslim chief has been removed and that a European has come. But that is not the reaction from various battles in South India at this time. At this time, the Europeans are seen as polluters uh, because they don't observe the caste practices. They don't, don't observe the food practices. There is a well-known war in the Bobili area of Andhra. Telugu country, um, where uh, it's, it's a, it, many poems have been written about it, of how the men and the women prefer to commit suicide and be killed. These are Hindu rulers and families, rather than accept European rule. There is nothing like acceptance of European or white superiority that is to come later. Um, now, Robert Orm this military historian from England, he also makes his assessments of India's, of India, of India's soldiers, of Indian psychologies. Uh, I'm reading from his comments so that you may know what he wrote, not suggesting that what he wrote is right. This is what this English military historian, who spent a lot of years in India, at the right hand of Robert Clive, writes. He says that the Indian soldiers often defend themselves very obstinately behind strong walls. But it would seem that no advantages either of number or situation can countervail the terror with which they are struck when attacked in the night. Even if there are large numbers of them, if some Europeans attack them at night, they are terrified, according to Robert Orr. Sometimes even a morning attack surprises native soldiers. As it is the custom in an Indian army to make the great meal at night and after the meal to smoke opium, the whole camp towards morning is generally in so deep and heavy a sleep that a handful of disciplined and determined men may beat up thousands before they recover alertness sufficient to make any vigorous resistance. He also says that in the wars in India, Many soldiers, after defeat, go over to the side of the enemy after the war is over. This is his observation. I'm not saying that I know this to be true, but I know that this is what Robert Orme has recorded. Robert Orme also notices and is surprised, and many other European observers visiting South India at the time are surprised by this and impressed by this, by the number of tanks and dams that they see, water tanks all across. They are very greatly impressed and surprised by this. They also refer, uh, this is Robert Orme himself now, he refers to the Indian skill in manufactures, cloth. Cloth export was of course what made India very rich. Apart from spices, the export of cotton cloth is what made India rich in the 17th and 18th century, exported all over the world. It is the suppleness with which the whole frame of an Indian is endowed, and which is still more, still more remarkable in the configuration of his hand 
It is to this that we are indebted for the exquisite perfection of their manufactures of linen. Then he makes another point, his assessment, that Indian chiefs will not commit themselves. Quote, the secrets of the princes of India are very difficult to be discovered. In affairs of consequence, nothing except in the most equivocal terms is ever given by them in writing. And whenever the matter is of great importance or, or iniquity, the matter is trusted to a messenger a man of low rank and great cunning, who brings a letter of recommendation, testifying that he is to be trusted in all he says. So indefinite a commitment reserves to the Lord who gives the commitment the, the resource of disavowing the transaction of the agent. So although Duplay is out and dies unsung, the French are not quite giving up and a man called Admiral Lally shows up, L-A-L-L-Y, yeah. Uh, and he's in Pondicherry, and in 1760, another very important battle takes place. In January 1760, in the Tamil area, not far from our quarter, city of Vellore, place called Wandiwash, as the British call it, Wandiwasam, or something like that, as the Tamils call it today. And this is an important clash. And again, the uh, British are successful and the French are defeated. Um, and a, an English soldier present in that besieged fort, then they managed to escape and to defeat the, the French. He says in his diary, January 22, 1760, then followed the battle that gave us India, unquote. So in January 7, 22, 1760, this British soldier writes of a battle as a battle that gave us India. So already by 1760, these traders have the notion of owning all of India, 1760. So Ananda Ranga Pillai is still in Pondicherry, and he hears that uh, the French have been defeated in this critical battle of 1760. In August of 1760, in his diary, Ananda Pillai writes, uh, he has heard that the governor, the French governor in Pondicherry, has ordered that a Brahmin who had been charged with assisting the English should be hanged. This Brahmin in Pondicherry, accused of assisting the English, the French governor says he should be hanged. What does Ananda Rangapile write in his diary? In former times, when a Brahmin was about to be hanged, I would explain to the governor that it was a great sin to kill a Brahmin. So he would be let off because the town was then destined to prosperity. Now a Brahmin has been hanged, and the town is destined to ruin. Of course, Pillay knows how the battle is progressing elsewhere. So by hanging a Brahmin, the French confirmed to Pillay that they are not aligned with the gods. 
one day after the French were defeated, and then Pondicherry surrendered. So one day after Pondicherry surrendered to the British, Ranga Pillay himself dies at the age of 51. So that's the story of how the French lost India and what Ranga Pillay thought about what was happening. Thank you.